This is Faith Revisited. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Ben. I'm the senior pastor at Historic Trinity Church in downtown Savannah. I'm passionate about following Jesus, loving my family, enjoying all sports involving the ball, and a constant pursuit to find the perfect bottle of bourbon. And I'm Molly, a Methodist from the West Coast, but after moving to Savannah a few years ago, I found a home in Trinity and a friend of Ben's. My greatest joy in life is simply sitting on the front porch with my husband, my crazy dog, and a great bottle of red wine. On Faith Revisited, we'll talk about our own church as we're constantly trying to adapt to an ever-changing world as a downtown historic church. We'll talk about United Methodist Matters as our denomination faces an exciting and uncertain future. We'll explore church leadership in the 21st century. And we'll talk to different faith leaders about their perspectives of religion today, how we can be more authentic, stop alienating people, and how faith is more important than ever to connect us to God and each other. Hey, maybe we'll touch on a topic that speaks to exactly where you are in your faith. We won't know until we try, right? Let's do it. Welcome to the Faith Revisited podcast. We're so happy to have you here today. We have a very exciting interview. Reverend Adam Hamilton, who is the lead pastor of the church, United Methodist Church of the Resurrection, uh, just outside of Kansas City, uh, Kansas, uh, is our interview for the day. And it's very exciting. Adam is uh, lead pastor of the largest United Methodist Church in America. He's a prolific author. Um, a denominational leader that that is just a mover and shaker and and has a powerful voice in the church and beyond. So we're very excited uh, to have him today. And we've peaked because he really was number one on our bucket list to get onto this podcast. Yeah, we said, let's give it a try and see if we can get him and we landed him. And Adam, um, if you're listening, we're so thankful that you took the time with us. Thank you so much for the interview. We learned so much and we're so glad that you were here. And now, more with Reverend Adam Hamilton. Well, Reverend Adam Hamilton, welcome to the Faith Revisited podcast. It is such a pleasure to have you join us today. Ben, it's great to be with you today. Thank you. I've admired your work and what you're doing in South Georgia and really appreciate you. Well, thank you very much. Just a brief background for the, the two or three people who, uh, especially in Methodist circles, who may not know you. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your story, and a little bit about the story of Church of the Resurrection. Sure. So uh, I grew up here in Kansas City, and I came to faith. I was baptized Catholic as an infant. I was pretty much nothing growing up until my, my parents went to Methodist Church for a little while, actually for several years, but we were never really committed dropped out, got involved in drugs and alcohol. And, and finally, as a 14-year-old kid, I was invited to a little Pentecostal church. And it was there, an Assembly of God church. And it was there. I started going because there were cute girls. And I married one of those cute girls four years right out of high school. But uh, I started going, began reading my Bible. And it was in reading through the entire Bible my freshman year in high school. Uh, when I got through the Gospel of Luke, that I got down on my knees and just said, I want to follow you, Jesus. And I'm going to give my life to you. Do with me whatever you want. And that continues to be my prayer every morning. I get down on my knees every day before I, as I begin my day and just say once more, Lord, here I am, 
Uh, I offer my life to you. Do with me whatever you want. Um, I uh, went to Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma to become a Pentecostal preacher. And it was my freshman year in college there that I found myself struggling uh, a bit theologically. I had a lot of questions and I was told by my pastor in Tulsa, don't ask so many questions, just accept it by faith. And that didn't set well with me. And my, uh, later on in that year, two of my best friends were killed in a terrible accident and that raised a lot more questions with me. And I didn't like the answers I was hearing, you know, people saying things like, well, it must've been the will of God and Jesus needed another angel in heaven and all these kind of things. And, and, um, I found myself searching, trying to find some answers. And I thought I, there's no way I, I had felt called to be a pastor when I was 16, and here I am in college studying to be a pastor, and I thought, there's no way I can be a pastor when, when I'm not even sure I believe in this God who, you know, kills people, kills young people in their teens and 20s because he needs another angel in heaven. And, and uh, that led me to um, really digging deep into the doctrine of providence and the question of theodicy or why bad things happen to good people and, uh, and how we reconcile you know, suffering with the justice of God. And ultimately, I felt like I got a handle on, okay, I think I understand that God isn't like the Wizard of Oz pushing buttons and pulling levers, but instead God has given us as human beings agency to be able to make decisions. We live in a world that's beautiful and wonderful, but sometimes it's dangerous. And, and, um, and so I came to this place where as an 18-year-old in college, I thought, okay, I think suffering pushes me to recognize I, I need God even more and that God is not the cause or the source of that suffering, but God is the one who redeems it. And that led me to look for a new church. I thought, okay, I don't think I fit in this more fundamentalist black and white church that I was attending in Tulsa and began trying to figure out where do I fit. And I uh, thought, well, I was baptized Catholic and I feel called to ministry, but I was got married the week after high school graduation. And so that kind of ruined my chances as a Catholic priest. And I thought, maybe I should see what the Methodists believe. And I went to the library at Oral Roberts University and checked out the most authoritative book I could find on Methodism. It was called The Book of Discipline. <laughs> and I began reading it. And, uh, and as I read it, uh, you know, the first, the opening sections on the history and on the theology or the theological task and, uh, the, you know, our doctrinal standards and then the social principles, I read all those things and I thought, this is what I've been looking for. And so as an 18-year-old kid, my wife and I, we, you know, we went forward and joined the Methodist Church in Tulsa and felt really literally called to be a part of this, uh, this movement, this denomination, and felt like God was somehow wanting us to be here and to, to do something to help United Methodism look more like the Methodism I was reading about in the Book of Discipline and the historical statement. And uh, finished ORU in three years. I, I went summer term, interterm, everything. I maxed out my classes so I could get done as quickly as possible. And then moved to, Tol to uh, Dallas to go to Southern Methodist University Perkins School of Theology. And, uh, and it was while there I felt this, this call to want to start a church for thinking people who were non-religious and nominally religious to help them see that you could be smart and a Christian and that, uh, and to connect the dots for them and help them say, okay, I see why I Christ. And so I graduated from seminary. I was out for two years uh, starting in 1988 uh, as an associate pastor. And the whole time I kept telling the Bishop, I'd really like to start a new church for thinking people in the Southern part of Kansas city. And uh, that I was finally allowed to do that in 1990 and that was the beginning of Church of the Resurrection, and and the rest has just been this wild roller coaster of a ride, um, leading this congregation. Wow! So y'all are coming up on your thirtieth uh, anniversary. Yeah, next year will be uh, so. This year is our twenty ninth. Next year will be our thirtieth thirtieth uh, anniversary. 
Wow. Yeah, October 7th, 1990 was our very first worship service. How about that? I want to hear more about Church of Resurrection, but one of the things that that I know a lot of our listeners are curious about is is Adam the leader, but also a little bit more about Adam the person. So when you're not, you know, up to your eyeballs and work at Church of the Resurrection, what do you enjoy doing? How do you unplug? What what brings you joy in life beyond church work? Yeah, thank you for asking that. So I have uh, two daughters and a son-in-law and a granddaughter. And probably if, if I could do at this point in my life, if I could do anything with my spare time, it would be spending time with them. So tonight, uh, our five-year-old granddaughter, she just started kindergarten. She's spending the night at our house. And we're going to take her down. And my uh, youngest daughter, Rebecca, who's 29, she has a mobile plant shop. She, we helped her buy a bus, a small bus, and, and she totally renovated it into, into a uh, kind of like a think food truck for plants. And she set up shop in Midtown in Kansas City. And so we're going to go hang out with her for a couple hours and uh, take her and our granddaughter to dinner. And then we'll go back to the house and play hide and seek and read books. And so that makes my heart beat fast right now, getting to do those things. And in addition to that, my wife and I, you know, we, we have uh, date day or night every week. And so we go to the movies and theater and, and uh, I have season tickets to Kansas City Chiefs and love watching them play. And I've got a motorcycle I like to ride, an old tractor that was born the same year I was, 1964. And I like to get out of my tractor and play sometimes. And, and so um, and I enjoy going to the lake and hanging out at the lake too. So those are all things that I really that bring joy to me. And, and, and I love to travel. My wife and I both love to travel. That's very cool. I'm a Falcons fan, and I got to tell you, we're looking at Patrick Mahomes. Chiefs got a good quarterback, man, for a long time. <laughs> I think so. He's he's a very exciting guy to watch. He is fun. So I, I this is a question. If for no other person in the audience, this one's for me. You write books. You travel. You speak. You're a family man. You lead a, uh, the largest United Methodist Church in the country. You 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 in many ways appear to be everything to everyone. What are some of the essential routines in your life? Like, what, what do you do when you wake up? How, how do you do more than most human beings seem capable of doing? What, what, what's vital to your life's rhythms? Sure. Well, first of all, I'll say, uh, you know, even in my life, there are times where I get to the edge of burnout. So uh, this summer, I, I overcommitted three years ago to uh, finishing one book by June and getting another manuscript finished finished several months from then that I had to really work on this summer. And that all worked out fine. I, I had it all figured out how to balance that until we came to General Conference 2019 and the, and the conflict there, which has just consumed huge amounts of my time since then. And so all of a sudden I'm finding myself, you know, I have, so I get uh, the month of July, I take off. The church gives me that time away for reading and outlining sermons and writing and whatever else I need to do. And, uh, and so I go to the lake to do that. And usually that's a well-balanced play with my wife, some take the boat out, uh, you know, wave runners, just, I take long walks and all this kind of stuff. And I read and write and all that. And this summer I just felt like I was so overwhelmed that my chest pains and I'm, I am, uh, feeling, you know, a bit, you know, the, burnout symptoms of being depressed and I'm feeling like my wife's upstairs, you know, watching TV or out on the lake and I'm, you know, sitting at my desk every day for, you know, too many hours. So that happens with all of us sometimes. And I find that, you know, I, I came away from that and I told my wife, I will never do that again. And I am so sorry that I did that to you. And so it, 
teaches me, I, I take on more things than I should sometimes, then I get to ratchet it back and go, okay, wait, that's not healthy. It's not good. Slow down, cut out certain things so you can have more balance in your life. And I think that's true for every pastor. We always go through that and probably every human being is we end up slowly taking on more and more and more. And then we got to figure out, okay, what do I have to ratchet back? But to your question of what my routine looks like, I think my routine is healthier today than it's ever been in my, in my life in ministry. I found in the early years of my ministry, and I'm embarrassed to say this, that I could, um, I could do pretty good ministry and spend very little time praying. And, I, you know, I'm embarrassed that. I was embarrassed of it then, but my devotional life was pathetic. Um, I tried, you know, I spent a lot of time reading and preparing for sermons, but in terms of, you know, a richer prayer life, I wanted it. I would take retreats where I would spend time in prayer with God. But in terms of my daily rhythms of reading scripture and praying, I felt like I was probably anemic a lot of that time. And um, today I will say, so a typical day, I'll, uh, I wake up um, earlier than I used to. I'm, I'm a night owl, but I wake up a little earlier than I used to. And uh, I start on my knees in prayer and I offer my life to Christ. And I, uh, read scripture. I have a couple of devotional reader uh, readings that I do each day and spend time praying over the scriptures. Then I take a, I try to exercise every day and I didn't ever used to do this until two years ago, a year and a half ago when I thought, okay, something's got to change. I'd gotten overweight. I was, my blood levels were bad. I, you know, the, uh, my blood readings, the doctor said, you know, you have the, the, uh, you know, you're just not I'm going to be here for as long as you want if you don't do something. So I started exercising. And when I walk, I'll take like a 40-minute power walk. And I, um, I start off praying. And then I take my pocket testament with me. And I'll read a chapter of, uh, right now I'm reading through the Gospel of Mark. I just finished Matthew. Um, before that, it was the book of Psalms. And, uh, and I will read and then pray some part of the scriptures. Come back and get cleaned up and pray in the shower again. And, um, and then I'm you know ready to get started with my day. And throughout my day... You know, part of what I try to do is I, I try to pay attention. And this is one of the question, one of the answers to the questions you have later on. And by the way, I wouldn't say everybody needs to spend 40 minutes walking and praying every day in order to have a vital spiritual life. But I do think it starts with every day yielding our lives to Christ. Just here I am, Lord, and inviting the Holy Spirit to work in us and taking time to read scripture are, are really, you know, among the key things that we do in, to enrich our spiritual life. Um, but in addition to that, it's paying attention to what's going on in the world around you. I find the Holy Spirit is constantly working and leading and guiding, but I've got to pay attention. I've got to notice. And sometimes we get so busy and so focused that we miss out on the moments where God is calling us or beckoning us or wanting us to be engaged in something. And, and I find if I pay attention, I even try to keep a little like a journal with me. I've got it here in front of me with a pen. I always carry a pen in my pocket. So no matter what, I can write down the things I've seen that I'm, I feel like is God either speaking to me or guiding me or, or something God's calling me to do. And so paying attention, I think is really important. And uh, so those are, those are some of the things is, you know, it's, it, reading and not just scripture, other things, uh, replenishing your energy banks. And then, and then I think we're meant to have fun too. So I try to make sure, you know, there are things that my wife and I go out and do that are just, just for fun, just enrich us, you know, whether it's theater or, you know, chiefs games or whatever it might be. That's great. Um, so we mentioned a couple of minutes ago, the, the shifting back to, to church of the resurrection that you're coming up on your 30th anniversary uh, of the church. Take us back 30 years. And you even had that desire. You said, you know, for a couple of years and kept telling the Bishop, I, as I grow as a leader and, and read more from effective leaders and just pray about becoming a, a better leader. Vision is something that I always look at effective leaders and say, gosh, how, 
how do they have this vision? Because you, that you must see something that others don't see. So take us back 30 years and, and what did you see um, compared to what there is now at Church of the Resurrection? Yeah, sure. Well, I could not have seen or imagined uh, what we are today. And if, if somebody had told me, this is what you're getting ready to start is this thing that we have today. I probably would have said, no, I would have been too afraid of, of that. It would have uh, unnerved me. So uh, what I could see then, and I I think, first of all, one of the things I think is most important for any leader is even more important than vision is passion. And I think you have to figure out what is it that I really believe in? What is it that I'm passionate about? What, you know, what is the thing that drives me? And for me, you know, that initial passion was I wanted to start a church for non-religious people who were thinking, you know, again, I say thinking people and that can come across the wrong way. But um, the Church of the Resurrection is located in a community where most of the people have almost, you know, 90 percent of the people have bachelor's degrees and a large percentage of the people have graduate degrees. And I thought there's quite a few of these people who who somehow have checked out a church. And it seems when they hear Christians talk, a lot of the most vocal Christians speak Christianity in a way that turns these people off. And so I had this passion for wanting to connect with those people. And when I was in seminary, I remember having a faith crisis where I was just going through all the philosophical questions. And there's this moment where I just thought, I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. And then, and then all of a sudden, you know, the next two years of my seminary were sort of putting that faith back together again. And, and it led me with a deep people who had thought, I'm not sure if I believe in God. And, um, and so that was one of my passions. Another passion I had was the revitalization of the United Methodist Church. I felt that from the time my wife and I joined when I was 18. I thought, I think this church has really great DNA. I think it's got some really great theological principles and ways of doing faith. It's just forgotten a lot of this, and it's not practicing it in a way that leads to vital Christianity. And and I felt even at that time that there was going to be this, you know, this, I, I came to faith in this evangelical, you know, evangelicalism of the late seventies, but I felt like that, some of that felt like it was being spent, you know, like it was, it had lost some of its energy even then. And I felt like, okay, there's going to be people looking for something deeper, something uh, more than what, you know, and, and when I looked to Methodism, it was this combination of both the intellect and the heart. It was both a personal faith and a concern for social justice that, you know, these things brought together. And so that was my passion was to, was I, I want to figure out how when we start this church that we can try things out and be like a, um, you know, be like a laboratory for testing new ideas out and then give those away to other churches if we, if we, find, if we figure anything out that works. So I had a passion around that, revitalizing other churches. And then I had a, a deep passion around helping Kansas City, that if our members were living out their faith, Kansas City would look more like the kingdom of God because we were here. And so looking to see where does Kansas City not look like the kingdom of God and what are we going to do about it? So those three things have really driven me. And I, I'll say, I, you know, I remember feeling frustrated because I'm like, okay, I know God is going to do something amazing here. I feel it, but I couldn't see it yet. I couldn't, I, you know, and I feel like I'm a pretty visionary person. I live my life a lot in the future, but I couldn't imagine. My imagination wasn't big enough. I, I'd never been to a church with more than 300 people in worship. Uh, and it's not about the numbers of people, but I just, that was my limit was, was I'd only been to churches like that. And I had not been to Willow Creek or Saddleback or any of these other places. And so I remember feeling like God is going to do something amazing, but I don't know what that is. And I can't even explain it to people yet. Um, 
but I, I guess that was enough at the time. Wow. Yeah. I mean, kind of that stepping out in faith and, uh, it's scary for all of us. And so that's, that's a great witness of just kind of doing it before you <laughs> fully believe it. That's really good. Right. Right. So one of the things I, I would love to kind of dig deeper at the culture of church of the resurrection, uh, you, you probably have heard the joke, but I've been out to your church a couple of times now. You're always hosting wonderful events and gathering United Methodists from, from all over. And one of the jokes that uh, we all say to one another is church of the resurrection is like Disney world for Methodist because it's, it's, yeah. It's wonderful. I mean, we see we see the you know the the wonderful product of how much work you all put in uh, to being such an effective church. I'm curious though, what would you say are a couple? You don't have they don't have to be in any ranked order, but a couple ministries that fly under the radar that probably most people would not see or name as like incredibly vital at Church of the Resurrection, but you know they're there and they kind of go under the radar. Mm-hmm. A couple of those ministries. Yeah, I, you know, I asked one of my staff this this morning uh, in preparation for this because I thought, okay, I've got a couple of ideas. What do you have? And there are there are actually tons of stuff I don't even know happens. I, I feel like every week I'm talking to somebody and they're telling me about the ministry they're doing. I'm like, that is so cool. I had no idea we did that. You know, I'm the senior pastor. It's it's uh, it's pretty awesome. There's hundreds of things that happen that fly under the radar, even my radar. But so I was thinking about today uh, as an example. I, I drove into the parking lot and. Uh, and there was a fleet of micro buses parked in our parking lot. And I looked out there and they were all bringing residents from memory care uh, senior centers here in Kansas City for the service we have once a month. And most of these people who come are, uh, they don't, or many of them anyway, don't remember their names. They don't remember, you try to talk to some of them and they, you can't even carry on a conversation. But they bring them here and they're in their walkers. I mean, we'll have a hundred walkers, you know, or walkers and wheelchairs in the room. And, uh, and we get up and, and we have people, I don't even leave the service. We have a lot of our lay people are passionate about this. We have a couple of our pastors who help and they uh, start singing the old hymns and these people who have Alzheimer's or dementia, they start singing the hymns. And for a few minutes, they remember who they are. They may not remember their name, but they remember that they belong to Jesus. And um, it really is, is quite moving. And, and so that, that's just, you know, that's one example of something that somebody had a, had a passion for. Maybe their mom or dad had dementia and they thought, you know, but they can still sing. Can we start a service for them? And, and so I love that, this service. And again, there was, I don't know, there was probably 200 people here for that this morning. Um, we have a ministry called Flourish that is our, uh, it's a furnishings ministry. And so we uh, repurpose things that might have ended up in a landfill. We have people who make uh, new fabric, new upholstery for the furniture. We uh, we buy new beds. We also redistribute and clean and redistribute beds. We have uh, everything a family would need if they lost everything in a fire or if there was somebody moving from homelessness to having a home. Uh, we pr- we have everything, dishes, we have the whole thing. We have a huge warehouse that we rent and people come in and they shop there and they have to have a reference from a social service agency to be able to, to go there. And we, you know, we load them up. We, I think we even have people who help deliver these things. And uh, one of the cool parts of that is a, is we have a, a vision that no child in Kansas city would be without a bed. 
we found out some years ago that there were children who were who had no bed. And so we work with uh, eight elementary schools in the poorest part of Kansas City. And, and at the beginning of the year, the teachers have a lot of the teachers have them have the children draw in, in the elementary school. Why don't you draw a picture of your bedroom and what you're where you sleep at night? And if they see somewhere the child's sleeping on a, you know, on the floor or on a, you know, these color, you know, crayon pictures, or they, you know, they hear from a child they're doing that, then they contact the parents and they contact us. And so we deliver uh, brand new mattresses, box springs, sheets, blankets, pillows, jammies, uh, the whole thing for, um, you know, for these families. And if there's a family that's basically homeless, they move from place to place to place. So they can't really have a bed. We have a bed in a bag and it's one that's inflatable. And it still has sheets and all that. And we just want every child, just even at night when they're sleeping, to feel like, hey, they're loved. And those are just two of, I mean, I, I could go on forever, but uh, I, I'll tell you one more. This is a, uh, a partnership that we have with the Jewish community. And there may be uh, Muslims in it too, but I, I know it's, uh, it started with our women. And they were building friendships between uh, Jewish women and our community. And they started something called Strangers No More. And they thought they want to create relationships and they want to stand with each other, especially in the, in the light of things like Charlottesville uh, a couple of years ago. It's like, we want to make sure that we have your back and we're standing with you. And I love this. And they share faith with each other and they attend, you know, each other's worship services. And, <clears throat> and you know, for our women, it's a profound witness to their faith. And I think their faith grows by virtue of being with their, you know, with their Jewish friends and Anyway, I, I, there's probably 150 things I could go over with you right now, but those are just three things that were, you know, came to the top of my mind. Those are awesome. Uh, yeah, all three of those. I, I'll tell you the, um, and I could just, we could banter forever about ministries like that. Your, um, your emphasis on uh, partnerships with public schools uh, has been very uh, inspirational to me. Uh, we, we were doing backpack buddies here in Savannah, which, you know, you, you prepare bags and, mm-hmm. and however many kids every weekend goes home with a backpack of groceries yeah. just so they get food for the weekend. And we have over the last three years strategically grown that ministry from uh, beyond backpacks to getting lists from teachers for school supplies and, and now creating bags for every child. And, and we started with a single grade. And um, last year we did a project where we partnered with a nonprofit to build bins for kids to, to organize their school supplies at, at home because often you know home can be a little chaotic for kids in, in, in struggling neighborhoods and so it's a nice little box where and we filled it with books where they can have a their space for their school stuff so your emphasis on public schools that that was something that really um, I know it inspires a lot but I want you to know it really did me and we we tried to watch watch some of the stuff y'all are doing and grow in that direction. Ben, that is so cool. That is, that's a huge part of our ministry here. And, and uh, we haven't done the bins you just described. So you just given me a new idea, but we do the school supplies and tons of other stuff, tutors and books and all that. And one of the things I love about this, and I teach this everywhere I speak on leadership, especially among United Methodists, is, you know, Wesley, when he started, you know, they were there at Oxford, you know, he's, uh, they're starting to tutor children already while before Methodism had really been anything more than just a small group of, you know, young college students, they start working with kids. And then, you know, you get to Kingswood and, and he starts the Kingswood school, uh, you know, for the kids of minors and also for the Methodist uh, uh, lay preachers. And, and so this emphasis on public education and in Kansas City, the first public school on the Missouri side of Kansas City was started in the basement of Westport Methodist Church in the early 18, or 1840s. And on the Kansas side of the state line, it was the Shawnee Methodist Mission uh, that was the first public school. So 
this emphasis on this, and I keep thinking with 34,000 United Methodist churches across the United States, what if all of us became known for that? We, we became known for preaching Jesus and caring about little children, wow. and especially children in poverty. I think it revolutionize our denomination. I think we would have, I think we would stop, maybe we might stop fighting about things that are, you know, that we're fighting about, and we might figure out, hey, let's focus on this and this unite. Anyway, I think it is one of the keys for renewal of churches is that that the non-religious people see us out there with our sleeves rolled up, showing the kind of love that Jesus had for children. And it's so rooted in the gospel. You know, Jesus said, let the little children come to me and forbid them not for the kingdom of God and his real concern for children. And if we're the body of Christ, we got to be doing the same. So great job, Ben. I think that's awesome what you guys are doing. Well, and it's, you know, like you said, our Methodist heritage, I'm not sure another denomination more effectively um, built a history on planting churches, um, planting schools, and planting hospitals than the United Methodist Church. That was like the DNA of who we were. We're going we're gonna to give you Jesus, we're going to teach you, and we're going to make uh, heal the sick. It's just been our Methodist heritage. Yes, I agree. That's awesome. So a question that, that I have, and again, for, for a leader um, at your level, uh, that I'm curious about what are some traits that you look for in recruiting leaders, whether it's lay leaders or campus pastors, staff members, whatever it is, what are some, what are some key traits that you look for in a leader? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I was thinking about this and I'll mention several. Uh, one of them is what I've already mentioned uh, before. And that is I look for passion. Is somebody passionate? about what we're inviting them to consider. Uh, if they're passionate about it, that's going to go a long way. They're going to work harder. They're going to give more of themselves. They are going to, you know, tough it out when it gets hard. So I look for passion. That's maybe the first thing I look for. Well, the first thing I'm going to look for is, is this person a Christian? Are they actually striving to follow Jesus? Does this, does, you know, does our mission, our purpose statement as a church, our values, our vision, our journey today resonate with those things? So I'm going to look for that first. Then I'm going to look for passion. And then uh, kind of tied with the first thing I mentioned, theological fit. So, you know, there's a lot of, um, there are, so at one point in our history as a church, we were at, at, at Church of the Resurrection. I was looking for people who had skills and experience, and I put that over theological fit. So I remember hiring a guy to do a particular ministry area at the church, and he had great experience in another church, kind of an evangelical non-denominational church and, and uh, doing this, uh, this same kind of ministry. And, uh, I didn't really ask or delve into our theological fit and, uh, ends up, he was, you know, more of a neo-Calvinist and he had, um, you know, a much more fundamentalist sort of understanding of certain things, including, you know, how do we interpret and read sure. And, you know, that didn't show up at first. And so he started building this, you know, a good program and then it starts showing up in, you know, I'm preaching something. He doesn't agree with that. He tells his leaders. We end up, you know, having to have a conversation about, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, we're, we're supposed to be pushing the same direction. It's okay if you disagree with me. I don't, I don't need everybody to agree with me, but I don't need you working against me. I don't need you, you know, speaking badly about the church or its vision or the United Methodist Church or whatever else while you're leading you know, one of our groups. And there came a point about 15 years ago where I had this meeting with all of our staff and I said, look, we're we're this church of the via media. We're this church of the middle way. 
And there's room for you to be more conservative and there's room for you to be more progressive here. And we're going to be focused on Jesus and we're going to be focused on not reaching non-religious people. But I need to know that you're moving people towards us and not away from us. Because if you're moving people away from us, like you're making them more progressive than we are or more conservative than we are. And like in a way that leads them to not want to be a part of our church, then you're actually hurting us instead of helping us. And so I, at this come to Jesus meeting, I just said, look, I love you. It's okay. But I need you to be honest about where you are. And if, if you're not a good fit here, then I want to give you six months to find another job. Uh, or maybe it was three months. I forget. It might've been three months. I want to give you three months to find another place to work that will be a good fit for you. And, uh, but I'm, I'm not going to have you here working counter to what we're at. And that taught me something, you know, it was a maturing for me to go, I really need to find out the people that I'm hiring actually believe basically the same stuff that I believe, you know, both the essentials of the Christian faith, but also a broader way of interpreting scripture and um, the ability, you know, our passion around social justice. And, and if they don't, that this is probably not going to work long-term. So anyway, I look for that both for leaders, our lay leaders, as well as our, uh, as well as our clergy and our staff. And then we look for giftedness. We look to see, do they have uh, people skills to be able to you know, work well with people? Do they have the gifts necessary for whatever that position uh, might be? Yeah, that's good stuff. That's really good. So there's a question I, I, I wanted to ask you, and I almost took it off the list, but I want to give you permission to keep your answer as concise as possible, because in Methodist circles, you probably get asked something along these lines all the time. What are your... What are you? What do you think are the most exciting opportunities in our denomination? And you can include in that some things that you may be frustrated with, because we all know we're kind of at this denominational impasse with one another. Um, of course, I want you to put it in a positive spin because I know you're an optimist, and 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 we believe in a God of resurrection, so we know we're going to come out on the other side. But but just briefly, what are some things that that you are excited about in the United Methodist Church, and maybe some things that frustrate you a little bit? Sure. Well, you know, I never imagined spending so much time dealing with the conflict that we're facing right now. And, you know, I want to not minimize the fact that that conflict's about human beings. It's about people and whether they are accepted and loved by God as they are, or whether there's fundamental changes that need to happen because their basic orientation, their desire to love and be loved uh, with someone of the same gender is fundamentally sinful. So, you know, if, if, so, I don't want to just say, hey, I just wish we'd stop fighting about this stuff. I think this really matters. And from my perspective, it has to do with human beings that I'm hoping that, that I believe God looks at differently than, say, some of my more traditional friends uh, look at them. And, and this has to do with how we're interpreting Scripture, uh, how we read and interpret Scripture. In part, it's, it's recognizing that we have differing, and differing ways of de- dealing with the... Just like uh, my Baptist friends who don't allow women to be ordained in ministry. You know, we argue about that and they believe that the Bible says this. And I say, well, I know the Bible says this. And here are the reasons why I don't think that captures God's timeless will. And by the way, not the answer to your question, but yeah, I'm doing a series on the Ten Commandments right now. And it's so interesting. The Ten Commandments are just foundational, right? I mean, they're the only part of the Bible was said to be etched by the finger of God in stone and they were kept inside the Ark of the Covenant. So they were the essentials of God's covenant with his people. But when you read them, and this is just a way of recognizing the complexity of our Bible. When you read them, uh, you come to the second commandment and God swears that he will punish the great, great grandchildren for the sins of their great, great grandparents. 
That's in the second commandment. Whereas Ezekiel 38 says that God doesn't do that. So we've, you know, so you, it kind of shows the, the complexity of scripture, just in the fact that we have certain things said one way and then somewhere else, uh, another biblical author uh, takes issue with that. And, and you get, uh, you know, into two of the commandments, you find that slavery, slavery was permitted. Their commandments are good commandments. They say, don't, you know, they let your slaves have the Sabbath off and, um, and don't covet your neighbor's slaves. But, you know, part of what we'd wish for is that God would have said, you know, slavery is just not right. Would have saved us 3,000 years of pain. Um, and, you know, did God change his mind on slavery or did the culture change? But somehow that gets caught up in the scripture. And, and, uh, and you know, the same thing with the 10th commandment, um, you know, where the neighbor's wife is his property. <clears throat> and today we don't think that way. And so, you know, so all of this points to this conflict we have over how we're reading scripture and, and how much latitude we have to, um, you know, to how much elasticity the scripture has in terms of how we interpret it. And we all interpret scripture and we all have things that we've set aside in scripture and said, no, that doesn't really reflect God's timeless will. So, so that's what we're fighting about right now, as, as we know, and, and then how we look at human beings and, and what we think God would say to his LGBTQ children. But what excites me is I think the day is going to come in the not too distant future where we will have figured out, <clears throat> we'll have found a way to part ways. And, um, and I, you know, the most traditional folks in our denomination have been asking to leave for a long time. So good news has been asking us, well, at least since 2004 for an amicable separation. And so I'm hoping that we can find a way for that to happen and bless them to be able to go and do ministry with the same great Methodist heritage and DNA and everything else that, that, uh, you know, that everyone else has and let them go and do that. And I think that's about 20% of Methodism, perhaps United Methodism in the United States says we can in a church where there's, where there's different practices when it comes to how we welcome gay and lesbian people. And for the 80% who remain, you know, I'm hoping that we've set policies in place that say, we're going to allow you to be where you are and practice according to your convictions. And, and I love the thought, I love the day when General Conference spends 10 days dreaming about how we're in mission and ministry in the world and not fighting about human sexuality. I long for the day when, when in our local churches, we've sort of resolved that to say, you know what, we're going to be that kind of church that's going to welcome people and there's room for disagreement, but we are going to love and welcome people and in a way that isn't condemnatory towards, uh, towards folks. And, uh, and so that I think frees us up. And it also puts us in a place where when I talk to young adults across the country, who are Christians, young adults who are Christians. There are, of course, some who are more conservative, but by and large, the Christians that I meet who are young adults are saying, that's the kind of church, what you all are doing at Resurrection is the kind of church I want to be a part of. When I talk to non-religious and nominally religious young adults, overwhelmingly, you know, they're saying, I, I can't imagine being a part of a church that would say, you know, that would speak to my gay and lesbian friends in a way that's not uh, welcoming of them. And so I, I think there a lot of, you know, great stuff on the horizon for us when it comes to that. Now, being aware of this, that being having a church that's more 
open and inclusive. Yours is this way too, Ben. Having a church that's more open and inclusive does not guarantee people are going to flock to your church. Like we got a lot of stuff that's broken and wrong in our churches. It doesn't matter whether you're conservative or, or progressive. Uh, being conservative on human sexuality does not guarantee you're going to grow a church even in South Georgia. And being progressive on human sexuality or, or welcoming and inclusive does not guarantee you're going to grow a church in San Francisco. There, that's just a basic either roadblock or hindrance or not to reaching people. We have got to be doing the things that we need to do to love people, to uh, offer a compelling reason for people to gather together in community, to help them find Christ in a way that speaks to them, to, to help them grow deeper in their faith, to preach excellent sermons, to offer worship services that are moving and inspiring, to have mission that goes out in the community that's transforming by which the community comes to see the you know, the light of Christ through us. I mean, there's so much more, but, but I do look forward to, and I'm excited about the idea that one day we will not be fighting about these things anymore, but instead, um, and, and focusing on all the other things that we need to be doing to create vital congregations. So to that point, you've got a, a minister just, just started in ministry, very first day in a local church. And they come to you and they say, Adam, What's one piece of advice on my first day of ministry that you would give me? What, what would that one piece of advice be? Uh, I, think, I think it might start with uh, listen and pay attention. So listen to the people, listen to the Holy Spirit, pay attention to the Holy Spirit's nudges. I would, I would say that. I would, but if I could have more than one piece of advice, I would say... Um, figure out the passion that God has placed in your heart. What is it that you're most passionate about? What is it that, um, you know, that, that God is calling you that you feel like this is why I want, you know, why I'm in ministry, figure that out and, and figure out how you get a chance to, you know, to utilize those gifts. I would also say preach great sermons. So really, if, maybe I'd say this, <laughs> I'd say do that stuff. And then I'd say, love people, preach really great sermons. And uh, this is my bishop when I was in seminary at, at Perkins back in 1987. Uh, bishop W.T. Handy from Louisiana uh, came down to visit the campus, and he said, uh, young man, he's a large African-American man. He says, young man, it's all about two things. And I said, what is that, Bishop Handy? He says, preach the word and love to people. And I think there's something to that, too. You love people, and you go out of your way to connect with them, meet them where they are build relationships with them. Um, and when they actually show up, have something meaningful to say that, that has been prayed over, that is faithful to the scripture, that the Holy Spirit is infused, that speaks to their lives. And I think you're going to find the beginnings of a great church. Yeah, that's no, that's really good. I, I, I've told people before, out of my, there are many moments of joy in my week, but quite often, not every Sunday, but almost every Sunday, just before the sermon moment starts, um, the longer I'm at my church now, the more joy that brings me because there are a few things I love more than being with my people in that moment, week in and week out. And so you're right, the relationships, um, working hard on your sermons, being passionate about preaching and, and making, making meaning together. That's good stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Adam, congratulations. You've made it to our lightning round. Two quick questions here at the very end, because you answered one of them earlier. I was going to ask you mountains, beach, or lake, and you revealed earlier in the interview that you prefer the lake. 
Well, actually, that's probably not true. I, I no. actually, I love the mountains and I do love the beach. I just that I have neither mountains nor beach in Kansas City. So well, I got to stick with the lake. That's all I got. All right. Well, that's good. So two questions. And the rule of the lightning round is you got to keep your answer to 15 seconds or less. Okay. So the first question okay. is, if you were to go into any vocation other than being a pastor, what would you do with your life? I would uh, either be a college professor or I might be a politician if I felt like I had a chance to actually make a difference doing it. Oh, very good. Very good. Those are two good answers. Now, finally, and we'll come full circle to your granddaughter. If you could take Stella anywhere in the world right now, where would you take her? <laughs> uh, uh, I'd probably take her to Disney World. Nice. <laughs> Disney World. I her, yeah, I am taking her to Egypt, though, in October. So uh, I've got 350 people from Resurrection that were uh, leading on a journey uh, following in the footsteps of Moses. And uh, I asked if my daughter and son-in-law would like to go and our granddaughter. And so they're going to be going with us. I'm a little nervous about that, actually, but I'm also pretty excited just to get to spend 13 days with her. So, so anyway, yeah, that's it. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Adam, for your time. Uh, folks, we're going to put links to Adam's blog, um, to his Amazon author page. There are j just the laundry list of wonderful books that he's written over the years. Um, and we'll put a link to the church's webpage as well, the Church of the Resurrection, so you can check out uh, more uh, about what the church is doing and even watch them. I have, they have one of the very best online worship experiences um, that I've seen, so that may be something you want to check out as well. But, Adam, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real delight. Ben, th thank you. I really appreciate you, and God bless you. Absolutely. All righty. Thank you. Wow, what an interview. Yeah, it was great. I, I, I really scheduled 30 minutes. He gave us almost 45, so it was great. Which is incredible, and it was so neat. Um, ben has been talking about Adam Hamilton, Reverend Adam Hamilton, for a long time, and I've also been following their work now over the past few months, and the legacy that he has 30 years of this crazy, successful <laughs> church and he just, you know, started it. He said, like, he started it. He had this idea. He didn't know where he fit in. And he was just like, I want to start new churches. And that was just like his determined nature that he believed that in Kansas City, there was a place for the church. Yeah, I loved one of the things that, that he said. He kind of just expanded the vision for the church that on the personal level, um, for people who, who were not religious or nominally religious, but, but thinking people who wanted to bring that thinking nature to to scripture, to faith, to their spiritual lives. He wanted a place for them as individuals. Then he expanded it out. He wanted a place that that if it did what it was called to do, resurrection, that Kansas City would look more like the kingdom of God. Yeah. And then expanded even bigger than that, that his love for the United Methodist Church, that the book of discipline of all things converted him. up, holy cow. I don't know how yeah. he stayed awake. <laughs> But, but that that put a passion in him to, to help renew and reform the church, the denomination. So it's yeah. really powerful. And he said in there, the passion was more important than the vision. Like he said, I had no, I would have been terrified if I knew what was going to be 30 years ago when I started. He's like, I probably wouldn't have done it. Fear would have got a hold of me. But having the constant passion for it is 
what keeps them going. Yeah, for, for leaders out there who, who worry and struggle with doubt, um, 30 years ago, he planted a church. Today, it has over 25,000 members and countless uh, vital ministries in the community and the world. And he, he'll openly say he didn't really see it. And it's okay yeah. if you doubt, because that doubt is where you put your trust in God. And, and you, you know, the passion doesn't wane, uh, even when the doubt is present. So, so it was really a good word for leaders of all levels that, that, you know, um, I, the, you know, um, the, there's an old joke about act as if ye have faith and faith you shall have, or yeah. fake it till, you, it make till it. you make it. That's great scene from say. the West wing. He kind of did it. And so for yeah. all leaders, it's a great word. Yeah. Don't be afraid. Just start. I mean, that's a good lesson for everyone as well. So one of the things that jumped out at me that I had not, it really resonated and I don't think I do it enough. One of his big life rhythms and, and words that he had at the end for new pastors is to pay attention. And, and, you know, I'm a type a workaholic many days, most mm -hmm. days. And that notion of, of paying attention, pay just, attention to the nudges of the Holy spirit. Yeah. That's what he said. And, and that he finds the spirit nudging him in just some of the most quiet and routine moments of life. Mm -hmm. Um, pay attention. I mean, I'm, I'm going, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and in, in my time of, of morning prayer, you know, make that part of my time to, to Lord help me pay better attention today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he he mentioned it twice. So the pay attention at the end, like you were saying, but he also mentioned it in the beginning as pay attention to what's going on around you. You know, be in the know of just what's happening around you, not even just in your denomination, but be aware of what's happening in the world. So I like that in both ways. Yeah. So yeah, this was a great interview. I loved listening to what he had to say and um, what he sees for the United Methodist Church is very inspiring. And it's awesome that in the middle of the United States in Kansas City, there is this amazing life and congregation and people are finding Church of the Resurrection and being saved by it. Yeah, I can tell you um, it, it's a tremendous thing to go visit, uh, to just see. I mean, we get, of course, I said in the interview, we get to see the product of a ton of hard work, but uh, the culture of volunteerism there that I heard a lady the last time we were there in May uh, for a meeting, there are all these volunteers there, like during the middle of the week. And he said, Oh, it must be such a hassle to be out. And she said that they had to sign up months ahead of time because there's such a competitive uh, thing about being able to volunteer. And I'm thinking, gosh, yeah. most pastors would kill for that kind yeah. of, but, but that's part of the culture. And so to go out there and to experience that culture that you heard Adam talking about is, is, it's, it's inspiring. That's amazing. So thank you all for listening today. We really appreciate your time. If you would leave us a review on iTunes would be great and helpful and help us be found. And we're so glad that you took the time and listened today. Thank Un you so much. Until next time.